Hey, SLP Nation. I'm so excited to share today's episode with you. If you've been looking for a way to supercharge the growth of your practice by earning school or government-based contracts, then this episode's for you. I'm joined by Ebony Green, founder of Casa Speech, who shares how one government contract grew her business from one employee to 20, experienced a 400% top-line revenue growth, and just opened her second clinic space due to the demand for her services. The three big takeaways with Ebony, number one, Conduct your due diligence of all the opportunities to win these contracts. Ebony has coached numerous SLPs around the country to find these opportunities in their local community, their county, and across their state. Number two, you need to have the grit and perseverance in order to be successful. Ebony earned her first contract on her seventh attempt, just showing how challenging it can truly be to earn these contracts. Number three, be an efficient CEO of your business. Rather than spending hundreds of hours learning to do this on your own, leverage existing resources like Ebony's Masterclass to teach you everything you need to know about school contracts and how to obtain them. For all the resources and show notes, head on over to utterlyfinancial.com forward slash 19. And with that introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ebony Green. Welcome to SLP Money an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Ebony, welcome to the SLP Money Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Craig. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we have so many interesting topics to go over today. And many listeners over the last few months have reached out to me to discuss one of your areas of expertise, which is getting school contracts, how to negotiate for them. Before we dive into that, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your background, why specifically you decided to become an SLP? Sure, absolutely. So what interested me about this field, I was a bilingual teacher. I had two students who received speech therapy services. And one of the students at the time was a third grader and she had severe articulation issues. And I would always see how this student struggled with her self-confidence in class. It was really heartbreaking to see that the other kids would often talk about how she spoke and she was just such a sweet girl, but her articulation issues made it really difficult for her to just be able to be a part of her peer groups. And it even affected her studies. And when I went to her, her IEP meeting, I got as much data as I could from my, uh, from my classroom instruction and from my grade book and everything that I'd done to help the student, all the interventions that we were doing in class. And when I shared that information at the meeting, the SLP said to me, you know, she's like, Ebony, you have no idea how helpful this was. All of our students who have IEPs, they have to go through the process of getting their present levels shared by the teacher. And so often teachers don't share this type of data. And she said, this type of data is really going to help us figure out what the student needs. And then she said, you know, have you ever considered becoming an SLP? And I didn't even know what an SLP was. I thought it was just a tutor (laughs) at the school. And so I asked her to give me some more information because it was intriguing, but I honestly was afraid to venture into special education um, other than going to the IEP meetings. I never really knew what special educators did because it was just something that wasn't offered when I became a teacher. I, I joined a national teacher corps and some people went into special ed, but the concentrations that were 
most talked about and most people were familiar with were the general education certificates. So she told me a little bit about what SLPs do. And it was really intriguing to me when I learned that it's, it has to do with languages because I was bilingual. I love teaching students in Spanish and the language part of being an SLP was, that was a no brainer for me. I wanted to continue um, learning how to help other people learn languages. And that just seemed awesome. So that's one thing that was intriguing, but also the ability to differentiate instruction and help a student one-on-one. I think that's what really stood out to me the most. And so my little student that um, was on an IEP for speech, you know, she grew by leaps and bounds after that IEP meeting. And I just thought, wow, that meeting really made a difference in her growth. And if I could be the person that makes that type of difference in other students' lives that need speech therapy, especially because I was bilingual, you know, I interpreted at that meeting. So interpreting information to the parent was also something that I thought was, was really awesome. And yeah, that's, that's basically what I know that's a long answer, but that's kind of what got me interested in this profession. And I started taking leveling courses not too long after that. And it took me about 10 years from the time I started those courses to actually becoming a SLP. It's an amazing experience. And I know from having spoken with so many SLPs, especially the IEP process for you to have such an positive experience with those one-on-one encounters. I know there's a lot of work that goes into those meetings with the different school administrators, the parents, other professionals that might be involved. It's wonderful that you had such a positive first experience. So you moved from Houston to Arizona, uh, received your degree from NAU. And then did you go right into the schools in Arizona as well before going into private practice? I did. Going into the schools was something that I was really excited about because I was a teacher before. So I wanted to go back into that teaching environment, into that educational setting. And it was really nice to be back in the schools until I encountered my first school where there was a lot of red tape. There were expectations that were unrealistic (laughs) and it just wasn't the same as what I experienced in my first school. In my first school, I loved the campus. I loved the students. I was working with students in a low SES community. So it was wonderful. And I loved the staff. There was a really supportive team at that school. Then I went to another school and the team wasn't as supportive. And so going into a different different school with different expectations really changed my outlook of working in the schools. So I decided to, to leave the school setting and went out into private practice. Got it. And then as you headed into private practice, did you always decide that you wanted to stick with the pediatric population? Yes, I did. I love working with the pediatric population because I was, again, in K through 12 education, you know, working with those school age kids is something that I've always been passionate about. I did work with some adults during some of my clinicals and I like working with adults as well, but uh, I believe that the pediatric population is what's nearest and dearest to my heart. Awesome. And I know like so many of our listeners that they feel the same way that they devote their careers to working with the K through 12 population. And so let's talk a little bit about that leap going into private practice. When you left the school district and opened the private practice, talk to us a little bit about your caseload. Where did you find your first clients? How did you find these peds to continue working with? So when I left the schools, I actually started my first couple of clients on this side. So I was working in the schools and then I had a couple of clients that I would see before school or after school and on the weekends. And those clients came to me just through word of mouth. A couple of my friends knew that I was going to be starting my practice and 
one of them reached out to me and she was homeschooling her child and she said he could really use some help with his R's. So I started seeing him once a week at the library. And then she encouraged me to post about my company on a Facebook group for homeschool moms. And so I posted on that group and then I got more referrals from that one post. It was like five people reached out to me um, in one day because I offered a free screening. So the free screening turned into a few more private clients. And then once I officially quit the schools, I was able to devote more time into getting more clients. And I actually uh, devoted a lot of time to getting a contract with my state to provide speech and occupational therapy services for the Department of Developmental Disabilities here in Arizona. That whole contract changed the trajectory of my business. I had referrals five days a week. We couldn't keep up with them because the benefits are offered throughout the state for anybody who has a disability that qualifies. And so we we were doing, we were getting like five referrals a day at that point. And then once I grew to a certain number of therapists, I kind of stopped taking new clients because I was growing too quickly. <laughs> so I slowed down a little bit, stopped taking new clients, but now we're at about 20 therapists. We have about 150 clients that we see per week. And then we also have contracts with schools. So much to unpack with that. And there is, that's an incredible trajectory, especially from someone who found a few referrals by doing a few free screenings in a Facebook group. And all of a sudden your caseload became full. I would love to hear more about the contract that you got from the state of Arizona. Is that something that you applied for? Share with us how you come into a contract where you started by having just a few free screenings and now fast forward a few years later, over 150 clients, 20 therapists. Sounds like an incredible contract. Talk to us a little bit about how you received that and were awarded that contract. Basically, when I went into private practice, I created a business plan and my business plan was to primarily work with one-on-one private clients. Actually, I think I put in that business plan that I was not going to take insurance. But then I started to realize that in order to grow and scale, that I was going to have to figure out other ways to make money. Just doing the private pay, few clients here and there was great, but it wasn't going to help me grow to the point that I wanted to grow. And it, it wasn't going to allow me to have the reach that I wanted to have. So I ended up doing some research and figuring out how to get contracted with the state. And I knew that a lot of practices in my area had this type of contract because I worked for a few companies that were contracted through the Division of Developmental Disabilities. But the entire process took about 12 months from starting the application to actually being awarded a contract. It was a very time-consuming process. I had to provide lots of different documentation. I had to provide a business plan, a pandemic plan, which at the time I was like, why would I need to fill out a pandemic plan? What's going to happen to my business? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would require a pandemic plan, but obviously we know why. Right. Um, the, they were definitely prepared for what was going to happen in 2020. But at any rate, I had to get a lot of things together, things that I had no idea how to even put together. Like I didn't know what a forecasted financial document. So things like that, I had to, Google was my best friend when I was applying for this contract. And I Googled everything. I have, uh, my husband is my business partner and he does finance. So he was able to kind of get some of the financial stuff together, but it took a lot of research and it was very time consuming. And I was actually denied six times. I submitted my application for this particular contract on six different occasions and they denied me six times and I just kept 
applying because I knew that if I got this contract, it was going to take my business to the next level. And I'm very glad that I stuck with it because once it got awarded, like I said, we were able to reach so many more clients. A lot of clients in our state have this benefit. So if I didn't have this contract, then there's so many people that we wouldn't be able to serve because we didn't at that time accept insurance and we were just doing private pay. I think that that is a really important message for the listeners and just persistence is key. And so Ebony, within that 12 month period, you said that you were rejected six times for this contract. That is correct. And then so on the seventh application, that must have been quite a feeling when you received the approval. It was, it was definitely a moment where I, I couldn't believe that I actually got approved because I believe on that sixth rejection, I got an email from the contract specialist that was assigned to me. And she said, if you make one more mistake, I'm just going to throw your application out. (laughs) Nothing like, nothing like a little bit of pressure. (laughs) Exactly. And so I was like, okay, I got to make sure I get this right. And did my research again, Googled whatever I could Google, had my husband look over it at least five times. And yeah, when it was approved, I was like, okay, thank goodness, because I invested so much time in this, it had to work. And then of course, even after that, Approval. It still took a few months to actually get things going because sometimes when you're working with the government, you know, they're not on your timetable. So right, right. I had to be very patient. So that's kind of my tip is if you're working with any government entity on getting contracts, whether it be early intervention or something like what they offer in, in my state or even a school contract, just be patient because they tend to work on their own timetable. Now let's talk about what happens after you receive that great news and At that time, was it still, were you the only therapist in the private practice? Had you hired anyone yet? At that time, I was still the only therapist. I had a caseload of about 30 because once I got that approval, some of my clients from home health, I was also doing home health on the side. They decided that they wanted to continue with me. And I told them I was going to be transitioning to my own company. So they, they decided to come along for the ride. So I had 30, but I was still seeing them myself. I didn't have another therapist come on board until I started getting the referrals after I got my contract. And when the, once the referrals came in, I knew I was going to have to hire because it was just a lot. It's just such a wonderful problem to have. I know so many practitioners around the country who have trepidation about having a full caseload and wanting to grow business and expand their top line revenues. And then all of a sudden, here's a perfect example of someone like Ebony who receives this golden goose of a contract and all of a sudden needs to hire. And so share with us a little bit. Did you have some fears? Share with us a little bit about just, if you will, the hiring process and bringing on some therapists to help support this lucrative contract. Sure. Yeah. It was definitely a process that I went into with a lot of caution, mainly because again, this contract was very important to me. I worked very hard to get the contract. So I didn't want to hire someone that was going to jeopardize my contract. And there's very strict parameters involved with being a contractor with the state. They want to make sure that whoever you hire passes a background check. They have to be in good standing with the uh, system for award management. They have to also pass a, a check, a background check with different government entities. So once I went through that entire process, I remember the first hire that I had, I stayed up until about one or two o'clock in the morning, just checking all of her documents, checking the background check two and three times, making sure that the criminal history affidavit that they had to sign was complete. And my husband was like, you can do that tomorrow. Why are you staying up late, making sure that all this stuff is done? Just do it tomorrow. And I was like, because 
this is my first employee. You know, I want to make sure that she is good to go. I was just nervous about doing something wrong. So that was my biggest trepidation at that point. The other fear that I had was having to transition my clients to someone else because I had been working with these clients for a while and having to make the decision that, okay, I have to run this company. I can no longer service 30 clients. It was a big step for me. It was a really like giving away my baby almost for a lot of these clients, but the, the families were very understanding and I didn't think they would be as understanding as they, as they were. I think that that's a common concern that I hear is they are your children, right? In a way, yeah. this caseload, it's your caseload. You've built this business, it's yours. But as a service professional, you reach that saturation point where you only have so many hours in a day or so many hours in a week. Your caseload can only be a certain size. And so for the listeners, Ebony took a risk. She went, stayed up well into the wee hours of the evening, making sure that everything was okay for that first hire. And she went through and hired that person. And here you see coming out the other side with the families were accepting of the first therapist that she hired to help support and grow the caseload. And I would venture to guess that after you hired the first one, the process got a little easier for therapists two through 20. (laughs) It did. Uh, It it certainly did. The only issues I encountered after... (laughs) Hiring my first therapist was when I decided to add on occupational therapy because I'm a speech therapist. I don't know much about OT and hiring that new discipline was a little bit scary. I wanted to make sure that I had the right therapist. And I found that it's actually really hard to find therapists outside of speech. Speech, for some reason, is very easy to find in my area. I put out an ad on Indeed and I have someone respond definitely by the next day with some other disciplines like OT. I haven't hired a PT yet, but I'm going to hire a PT this year. I've heard that it's just much more difficult um, to get these therapists. So with my OT, the first person that I hired, it took about I want to say about four weeks after I posted an ad. And then I I wanted to hire an assistant because the assistant was going to be the person doing most of the therapy. And hiring the assistant was (laughs) one of the first lessons, like really hard lessons that I learned with hiring. And that was to follow your instinct when you're going to hire someone. If you don't feel like the person's the right fit, don't move forward with hiring them. And I I hired someone because I felt like I was going to make it work, even though I didn't really feel they were a good fit in the interview. And then of course, they worked for maybe two weeks and then decided it wasn't a good fit for them and they left. And I had just built a caseload of about 30 clients for this coda. So (laughs) it was, oh my gosh, I just remember having knots in my stomach, having to tell these families, I'm sorry, our coda left. We'll have to find you someone else. And after I went through that, I realized that you really, as a CEO, one of the things that you have to do that nobody tells you when you go into this is the decisions are what makes you the CEO of the company. This, the decisions that you have to make, that's what separates you from the therapist, right? Is you have to make these hard decisions, these difficult decisions. So yeah, now, now I, I don't hire as quickly. I hire slow and I fire fast. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful lesson to share with everyone, especially when you're hiring these people. I think another common thing that I hear from practitioners around the country is how do I know that my therapists that I hire will have the same standard of care that I have for my patients? And how am I able to make sure that they will represent, in your case, CASA speech 
just as you would, right? You're the reflection of you, the reflection of your company, of your brand, of everything you're trying to build. And so along those lines, did you put together some standard operating procedures or do you have some strategies and techniques during the hiring process to make sure that, again, these people are representing you and your company and making sure that they uphold the same standard and care of excellence that you do? Yes, I definitely did. In fact, when I got the contract awarded by the state, they one of the requirements was that I have policies and procedures manual in place. And that manual had to cover everything from drug use to how to answer the phone when you interact with a patient. So that was already put in place. And I'm glad that that was a requirement because that was something that I didn't really think about. But yes, when people come on board, I go through all of those policies and procedures with them. And it's something that you don't think about. Like you think, oh, this is common sense. People should already know this, but that's not always the case. It's definitely something that you have to go over and you should go over even something as simple as how to dress when you go see a patient because people have their own interpretation of things and they might've worked somewhere else where they did things a certain way. So if you want someone to represent your company and how you do things, you need to have standard policies and procedures in place. Absolutely. And that's such a strong and important message. I know that many people, when they're looking to make that leap from solo practitioner and receiving one of these contracts or growing the business, that that's a fear. And that's some wonderful insights, Ebony, on how to do that and how to overcome that. And like you said, people, you can't leave anything to chance because people are raised differently. People have different expectations. It's also not their business, right? They're an employee. And as you said, there's a huge transition that goes from being therapist to CEO. Yes. So let's Let's jump back a little bit. And again, with the growth of the business because of this contract, the main reason why I'm so fortunate for you to join us this evening on the podcast is to talk more about the contract. And if some of the listeners or any other practitioners are looking to grow, it sounds like government contracts, school-based contracts is a wonderful way to do that. One of the common questions that I receive from clients, listeners of the podcast is just simply, how do I get started? How can I do what Ebony did? I'm reaching somewhat of a full caseload now, but I really want expansion. I want to grow my practice. How can I do that? Or what would the first step be in how to procure one of these contracts? The contract that I have is specific to my state. So you can move to Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) But as far as the other contracts I have, I have contracts with school districts and anybody can get a school contract. That was another addition to my business plan because... When I started my contract with the state, things were going really well. I was growing. I was getting a ton of new clients, but we had a little bit of an issue with billing. And if you've been in private practice long enough, you will know that you don't always get paid everything that you bill for, you know, when it comes to insurance or just when it comes to collecting payment, you just don't always recoup everything that you you bill for. So we were having some issues with billing. Primarily, the person that we hired to do our billing was not doing it effectively. And my mind, my CEO mind went to, okay, how can I ensure that I don't lose any money? I know I'm going to lose some money, but I don't want to lose like all of my money because I'm waiting for billing to go through and I still have to pay my therapist and my cash flow was being affected by that. So I ventured out into school contracts. I I loved working in the schools. I had a bad experience before I left the schools and I wanted to go back into the schools. But the only way I would do that is if I could set my own, if I could have my own terms, basically set my own terms, set my own price, 
bring on a team if I wanted to bring on a team. And so school contracts was the way in which I could accomplish that. And I got my first contract actually because a friend of mine worked for a district that was in need of a therapist. They were in a rural area and I responded to something that she posted on Facebook. It was actually someone who I went to graduate school with. She posted in our Facebook group for our graduate class. And I responded that I could potentially work with the district if they would consider teletherapy. This was before COVID. So if you can imagine, there was no tutorials out there. There were no materials. There was no boom cards. <laughs> there, was, there was nothing to help facilitate teletherapy other than, you know, the few people that were already into that realm of our profession. But I went ahead and just put my hat in the ring by stating I would potentially do it if it was teletherapy. And surprisingly, they responded and they said, sure, we'd be happy to have you come on as a teletherapist. And then I had to teach myself in a weekend how to do teletherapy. I had to train my staff in a weekend on how to do teletherapy and we basically hit the ground running with this district. We, we serviced two schools that first year, all via teletherapy. I was traveling back and forth to do testing because I didn't even know how to test virtually at that time. So I would do all the, the testing in person and we would do the therapy online. And that set, those two schools that we served ended up re-signing the contract. And then they asked us to add on five additional schools. So now we service seven schools in that district, all via teletherapy. And I also have a contract with two other schools. So when it comes to contracts, I think you kind of have to put yourself out there. Number one, just like I did with my first contract with with the government, with the state of Arizona, I put myself out there. I kept trying. I was persistent. I was not afraid to figure out how to write a business plan, how to write a pandemic plan to put together these different documents that they wanted me to put together. You also need to present yourself in a professional manner. So when you go out there and you're pitching yourself to a district, they want to know that you're serious and that you're able to fulfill the job that they're hoping to have you do. So if I would have went into the meeting with the special education director before they offered me this contract and said, well, I kind of want to do teletherapy, but I don't know much about it. I'm going to have to figure it out. I don't have any materials. They probably would have been like, okay, well, you know, we'll get back to you. But when I went into my meeting with her, I was confident. And I said, we will definitely try our best to provide the best services possible for these students. I'm very confident that we can do this virtually. I believe that their services that we provide virtually will benefit them just as much as someone being in person. Right. So I totally a spin on it to make it seem like it's going to be very helpful and, and fill the need and then boom, I get the contract. So when you go out there, you just have to be confident and you have to really work for it. And, and if you put in the work you and you show that confidence, then people will be willing to work with you. Absolutely. And I think that in any line of work or whether it's with a school-based contract or going into a hospital setting or a SNF or wherever you might be a practitioner, I think just what you said is so important. First time we go through something, you lack that self-confidence and everyone suffers from imposter syndrome at some time, even though you're a highly credentialed professional and you went through all this schooling and you're seeing caseload kids or whatever population you're in, but you still have some of that because you haven't submitted a request for a proposal before, or you haven't had this conversation with the special education director. So it can be challenging, but I think what you said is making sure you have all your ducks in a row and you're prepared and you do your due diligence and you speak to everyone 
ahead of time. And so I think that that's a wonderful message to leave. Um, another question that I have for you is, you know, you mentioned that you started in private practice and then you went through, um, started receiving a lot of these different contracts. When you set your private pay versus your request for proposal through the school districts or the government agency, do you bill similarly? Is it different pricing? Is that all going into your request for proposal for the bid? Yes. I price differently for every bid that I submit because you have to factor in the, first of all, the amount of time it's going to take to do the work. So if you're going to be at a large district, you know, if you know that the proposal is for one of the largest districts in your state, for example, then you want to factor in that you might have a very large caseload. If it's something that's going to be you know, teletherapy and you anticipate you're going to have to travel there at some point, then you'll also want to factor that into your pricing. So I have contracts with, like I said, nine schools and the ones that are in the rural areas have a certain price that I've been on and the ones that are more local have a different price. So you just have to factor in all of the factors before you determine how much your services are going to be worth. Yeah. And again, that's all just the due diligence. So if you haven't put together a business proposal before. I know many private practice owners will self-admit that they are accidental business owners. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier, right? That sort of just happens. You wanted to leave the school district and you went out on your own and here we are hundreds of clients later, dozens of therapists working for you, right? It's amazing how things can grow and blossom so quickly, but there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. And so it's a tremendous story. Uh, Ebony, thank you for sharing all the details so far. I think one common thing that I often hear, regardless of whether it's school contracts or anything related to speech or business in general, is people want to know where there might be some some pitfalls or opportunities to slip up or maybe some mistakes that they can avoid. So if you had to surmise maybe one or two common mistakes that you had in your experience or perhaps other practitioners that you speak to, what would you say are some of the most common reasons that people might lose a bid or fail to get a school contract? I think it really boils down to how well do you market yourself and how well do you sell the services that you're going to provide. I tell my masterclass students, and I'll talk a little bit about my masterclass in a moment, but if you don't even have on your website that you worked in the schools before or that you want to provide school-based services, do you think when you submit an RFP, a district is going to want to work with you if they go to your website and they don't see anything alludes to you working with kids or working in the school setting. So everything that you put out or that you talk about with the district or that you submit to them is a marketing opportunity. Even if it's, you know, something on your website, you want to make sure that you're selling the services that you want to provide. So before I even started working in the district, As a contractor, I had on my website all of my school-based experience. I had on my website that, yes, we do provide services with schools. It was just something that I knew was going to come eventually, and I had a ton of experience in the school setting, so why not put that out there? Trust me, they are looking at your website. (laughs) They are looking at your social media if you have a business social media. So your marketing is happening even behind the scenes. If you're not confident in what you're selling and nobody is going to buy from you. I had a student in my masterclass who had the opportunity to work with the district. And when she got on the phone, she kind of froze. She didn't know what to say when they asked her questions about her pricing and about how she was going to staff the contract and what her plans were over the next few years. And so she told me, she said, Ebony, I bombed it. I didn't know what to say. 
I wasn't very confident. And so I gave her some tips and I coached her. And I said, the next time this opportunity comes along, these are the questions you need to ask. You need to ask them questions because they want to know that you're just as serious about the contract as they are. So she took my advice and then she landed her first contract on that second try with a different district. So I think the biggest mistake is just not being confident in what you're selling, not showing that you're, you're competent and that you're able to do the job because everybody out there is, you know, these big contract companies, people assume, oh, it's just going to be another big contract company that wins this bid. And that might be true. There may be some bids where they just want companies that have 30 or 40 therapists lined up. But I will tell you that for the most part, that is not how most uh, RFPs work. Most RFPs are designed to get as many people to bid as possible. And then they weed out those who, who don't qualify just based on not following the directions. If you've never read an RFP before, they are very detailed and very lengthy. And if you miss one step, your bid is, is tossed to the side. You mentioned that story earlier, right? Where you were on your seventh and apparently final straw. And so it's... Yes some of the errors are innocuous and you don't even know you're making them. And so to have the guidance and the ability to work with someone who's submitted these before and know how to submit these and what people are looking for, just what you said about marketing in general, right? Any, you mentioned the story earlier, you didn't know how to submit your first proposal or your first bid. And right. so you went to everyone's best friend when you don't know how to do something, you go to Google <laughs> and I can only, I'll ask instead of just hypothetical, do you have any recollection of how many hours you spent in the Google machine, trying oh to think gosh. about how can I submit this to the state of Arizona to receive this government contract? It was a lot of hours. <laughs> <laughs> so many you can't even remember, right? I and can't so, even remember. And, that, and that's the perfect answer because I think what happens, there's a mentality shift this, when you go from therapist to CEO and Ebony, I'm so happy with the way our conversation has gone tonight because originally I thought we'd be spending a lot of time on end conversation on the school contract part, but becoming the CEO is such a critical component of all of this. And when you become a CEO, you realize that your time is worth an extraordinary amount of money. So to go down the Google rabbit hole and try and learn all of these different things that Ebony has shared with us so far, how to submit a bid, how to put an RFP together, how to put financials, all of that. I can't even imagine how many different things you would have to Google to figure all of that out. And so as we're discussing the many, I would say many hours, Ebony, can't, you can't even recall how many hours it took you to put together all of the details and request for proposal and bid information for that first contract. And so I'd love for you to share with the audience a little bit about the side project that you've put together on helping practitioners like yourself avoid the Google rabbit hole and be an expert in procuring these school-based contracts with your masterclass. I love that. I love that you said avoiding the Google rabbit hole because it's so easy to get stuck down that rabbit hole. What I wanted to do was I wanted to provide this information to SLPs because during the time that I was filling out all of my stuff for my applications, for my RFPs, and just trying to put together you know, these professional proposals, there was nobody for me to ask questions. I knew one person had gone through the process of getting a contract with the state of Arizona. And he was a colleague of mine from graduate school. So when I would ask questions, I would always feel bad, like I'm bothering him. I know he's busy and he's not really like someone I'm paying to get information from. So it was a feeling of overwhelm, but also like not having anybody to help me. And when I put together this masterclass, I thought, you know, I want to be that resource to help 
SLPs who want to go after e-school contracts. It's something that's totally outside, outside of our scope, but just to be a resource and to be able to point people in the right direction is why I started the class. Yeah, and it's incredible. So if, if our listeners are looking for more information on the masterclass, do you mind sharing the website or the contact information on how they can learn more? Sure. So you can go to www.schoolcontractingmasterclass.com and that's the website where you can sign up. I will say I only offer this class three times a year, maybe four if I get a lot of interest and I actually always get a lot of interest, but it really depends on just my ability to be able to commit to helping the students. I like to be involved when students are taking the course, even though it is a hybrid course and you get to watch the information on your own time. I want to be able to answer questions. And I also provide coaching in a live group coaching format two times during the course. So it's a really good course to get you started with marketing and with putting yourself out there. If you have like zero leads or you have a couple of people that you know, but you don't know how to bring up the conversation of how do I get a contract or can I get in a contract with this district? And then I also walk you through, you know, the whole RFP process. If you've ever seen an RFP, like I've mentioned a couple of times during this podcast interview, they're very lengthy, very detailed, and one mistake can, can cost you um, the whole contract. So I walk students through that process. I show them examples of RFPs that have, you know, that I've applied for. I've shown them examples of ones bids that I've won. And I share a lot of resources. I want to help other SLPs have the type of success that I've had. And having these contracts has been a game changer for my practice. I don't ever fear not being able to pay my rent, having to, you know, running payroll, my payroll is like in the tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> it's not like a thousand dollars or $2,000. It's in the tens of thousands of dollars. So when you see that type of money, leave your bank account, you want to be confident that that money's coming back. And I'm able to have that confidence with having these contracts in place, because I know at the end of the day, they're going to pay me based on the terms agreed upon in the contract. Absolutely. And I think that's always something to think about as private practitioners, grow their businesses, right? You've mentioned that you now have almost two dozen therapists working for your company and that comes with a lot of responsibility and you want to make sure that you have the opportunity to have that, I don't know if guaranteed revenue is the right word, but a much more highly likely ability to collect on the revenue to be able to not only provide for your business and your family, but all of the other families that are reliant upon your practice. So it's an incredible opportunity and I think it's a wonderful opportunity for those looking to grow their business, if you're looking to get contracts through either government agencies or the school district, certainly something to take advantage of. And so as we begin to wrap up here on this episode of SLP Money, longtime listeners of the SLP Nation know that we like to leave our listeners with three action items to take advantage of Ebony's expertise and everything we learned on the podcast today. So number one for me is please make sure that you do your due diligence and research on all of the opportunities and contracts available to you through your state your school district, your county. Ebony shared a few that are out in Arizona. We know from speaking to practitioners around the country that many similar programs exist in your state and your county. So do some due diligence, um, talk to other professionals, and make sure that you are aware of what is available to you in the area. Number two, persistence is key. Ebony shared a wonderful story with us that it on her seventh try, she received a contract that changed her business, her life, and 
everything about her business. And so again, growing from one therapist herself into a business of over 20 therapists with over 150 clients, an incredible trajectory, incredible experience and growth. And that all happened with persistency. I'm sure there were times where she was frustrated and wanted to stop and just say, I'm done. This is, what am I doing? I don't want to do this anymore. But she stuck with it and landed a contract and talked to us about now having almost a dozen school contracts on top of the government contract. And number three, I think this is one of the major transitions. And I think it's a really important message that Ebony shared with us about going from therapist to CEO. You as the CEO of your private practice need to know what your time is worth. And so if it is a goal to grow organically through school or government contracts, we talked about the Google rabbit hole and how many hours you will spend going down that. So whether it's submitting a request for a proposal or knowing what your contracting rate is with private pay clients, the investment into working with professionals who can short circuit a lot of the mistakes you can potentially make or troubleshoot some of the hardships you'll go through while learning or trying to do this on your own or just having an investment. Ebony's put together a wonderful masterclass that can teach you all of these different things. She has tons of information, which again, we will link to in the show notes, both her private practice as well as her contracting masterclass. So That's going to wrap up tonight's episode of SLP Money. And I thank you so much for being with us. And Ebony, thank you so much once again for joining us. And any last words for our listeners? Thank you, Craig. I'm really glad that we got an opportunity to chat tonight. And I'm so excited to go back and listen to this episode because I think that it's important to remind myself of why I started this whole journey of becoming a contractor with my state and with the school districts. And I encourage everyone just to seek out those opportunities. You know, don't feel like you're too small or that there's bigger and more established companies out there that are going to take these opportunities from under you because you'll be surprised at if you put in the work, if you do your research, if you do your due diligence, then you will be surprised at what you can accomplish. And had I quit after the first two or three rejections that I got, then my practice would look a lot different than it looks today. But I'm very glad that I continued. And like Craig said, there's 20 therapists that are dependent on my company and 20 therapists, those 20 therapists are thankfully able to keep their livelihood and their way of life and pay their bills because of what I've built and because of my persistence and just wanting to expand my reach and continue to serve my community. So if you're passionate about something, seek out ways that you can do it. I was passionate about the schools because I was a teacher. I loved it, but I just didn't like my last experience. So I I fixed it. I made it better. And I'm very glad that I continued down that route and continue to pursue my passion. So if you guys have any questions about contracts or if you have any desire to learn more about this process, then please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. I'm always sharing information, especially if people ask me in my DMs or they have specific questions, I will then address that in a live stream or in my story. So I hope to hear from some of you soon. Okay, Ebony, thank you so much. And again, thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of SLP Money, and we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to SLP Money, hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening.
materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual and professional advice. Craig Goldslager is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and financial services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Utterly Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Craig Goldsliger does not maintain specialized licenses or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech-language pathologists and private practice professionals. California Insurance License 0K78754-2020-10700. Expiration 04-2023.